RD Talks, brought to you by Reader's Digest Australia. The Case of the Missing Keys by David Moller. With just one vital piece of evidence to go on, the Manchester police could catch the killer. But the clue had vanished. She lay face down in a 12-foot pool of blood, a young woman in nurse's uniform, her arms above her head as if in surrender. Julie Green, 24, had just come off night duty at Wigan's Royal Albert Edward Infirmary when she met her end, sometime before 10am on that Thursday, October 31, 1991. An empty pill canister lay by her right hand, a rolled-up scrap of paper by her left. Nearby, on the storeroom's concrete floor, was a two-pound lump hammer, heavily blood-stained. Detective Superintendent Norman Collinson of Greater Manchester Police paused in the storeroom doorway. A stocky, white-haired, 47-year-old veteran of some 50 murder inquiries, he methodically scanned the room. A wide workbench along one side, piles of building materials on the other. There was no sign of forced entry or struggle. He and his colleague, Detective Superintendent Frank Smout, 51, went cautiously inside. They found the door to the kitchen locked, a key lying at its foot. Then they retraced their steps through the storeroom's outer door into the cobbled alleyway at the back of 179 Gidlow Lane and hurried round to the front of the two-storey terrace house. The victim's handbag, knitting bag, nurse's cap and coat lay in the hall. Upstairs in the main bedroom... Collinson saw an alarm clock very like his own. A good timekeeper, but woefully inaccurate alarm. Julie Green, an attractive, dark-haired woman with an appealing, rather toothy smile, was a popular figure in Wigan's close-knit community. Cheerful and outgoing, she was always happy to help others. Even before taking up nursing, she had worked at the hospital as a volunteer. A gifted pianist, she gave up a lot of her time to teaching others to play. She was very close to her widowed mother. Even in her late teens, she often chose to holiday with her and her aunt rather than with her own friends. In June 1989, she had married Warren Green, her childhood sweetheart from their days at Wigan's Deanery High School, where Warren, quieter and more academic than Julie, had passed 11 O-levels and 4 A-levels. Later, he had studied law at Lancaster University and Chester College of Law, and qualified as a solicitor in September 1990. The following month he had started work with the Crown Prosecution Service in Salford, preparing criminal cases for trial. Warren and Julie had won respect in the community for their work as leaders with the scout and guide packs attached to nearby St Michael's Church. People were struck by their closeness. He bought her an eternity ring for their first wedding anniversary. She always baked him a cake on his birthday. Though Julie's decision to give up her local government job and go into nursing meant a drop in their income, he was supportive. A friend says, Julie always seemed to be laughing when Warren was around. Now, 26-year-old Warren, slim and dark-haired with a round, almost boyish face, sat in a CID office at Wigan Police Station, describing how their seemingly golden life had suddenly lurched into nightmare. He had taken three days off, to work on converting the storeroom into a garage, he explained. On the previous evening, he had been out with his friends Stuart Skett and Andrew Foster, visiting local pubs. Next morning, his alarm had woken him at 10.02am. 
Julie should have been back since her shift finished at 7.45. But only the cat, Goliath, lay on her side of the bed. Pulling on some clothes, he went downstairs to look for her. No Julie. Searching the house more thoroughly, he was puzzled to find he couldn't get into the storeroom from the kitchen. He peered through the keyhole and saw the key was, unusually, on the other side. Remembering a trick he had once seen on television, he slid a newspaper under the door and managed with a screwdriver to jab the key out of the lock. He heard it drop and carefully pulled the newspaper back, but no key lay on it. The only other way into the storeroom was through its rear outer door. He kept the key to that door with others on a key ring that had a large leather fob bearing an E-type Jaguar medallion. He was sure he had left the keys on the kitchen worktop the night before, but they had gone. He knew there was a spare key next door at 177 Gidlow Lane, which he owned but rented out to Joe Maguire, a funeral director. Seconds later, Green found his wife. I ran into the storeroom, he told the police. I wanted to pick her up and hold her. There was blood all over the floor, a big lumpy pool of blood next to her head. In the mortuary of the Royal Albert Edward Infirmary, Norman Collinson looked down at Julie's face with a deep laceration over her left eye. The pathologist, Dr Edmund Tapp, shook his head. More likely a punch or kick from her assailant at the start of the attack. One massive blow to the side of her head had almost severed Julie's left ear. The position of the other 15 blows indicated that the killer had stood astride her as he methodically smashed her skull. This was no heat-of-the-moment attack, mused Collinson. It was a cold-blooded execution. He was still at the mortuary when Detective Inspector Jack Booth called from Wigan Police Station. Green says he woke up at 10am, he said. If you're returning to the scene of the crime, boss, would you check what time the alarm went off? Back at 179 Gidlow Lane with his colleague Frank Smout, Collinson turned the alarm clock's hands. Although the alarm was set for just before 10 o'clock, it rang at 9.40, 20 minutes early. The two officers exchanged glances. It was something, or nothing. By 8pm, a darker, more complex picture of the couple had emerged. Detectives discovered from letters they found in the bedside table that for the past three months, Julie had been having an affair with 22-year-old Stuart Skett. They knew it was wrong, Skett acknowledged, but couldn't bring themselves to stop. Could Warren have killed her in a frenzy of jealousy? asked Collinson. His colleagues thought it unlikely. In interviews, Green's friends had painted a picture of a very controlled character, a cold fish. In any case, added Booth, he's hardly been the model husband himself. Warren Green, they discovered, had become infatuated with Julie Warburton, a 20-year-old law student who was spending the summer doing work experience at Salford CPS. Warren had given her small presents and invited her out to dinner. When he and his wife were on holiday in Corfu, he had written her love letters. Could he have wandered his wife out of the way because of Julie Warburton? Collinson speculated. Booth shrugged. What about Skett? asked Smout. Could he be involved? Booth shook his head. He's already been alibied out. At the engineering plant where Skett worked, his clocking-on card showed he had come in at 8am and his workmates vouched for his presence there all morning. 
Collinson turned his attention back to Green. He said he had woken at 10am, yet the alarm had clearly gone off at 9.40am. Why was he so keen to lose those 20 minutes? At 10pm, Green was arrested. He seemed unfazed. As a lawyer, he knew that a spouse was often an early suspect in an inquiry. Again, he gave Booth his story. By next morning, a major incident room had been set up in the CID wing. From Green's home, detectives had retrieved some documents revealing that the couple's finances were tight. Green had bought his home at the height of the market and taken out loans to pay for renovations as well as an £80,000 mortgage. If his marriage had failed, Julie would have been entitled to half the equity in the house and the adjoining property, but both were only half renovated and difficult to sell in a dead market. However, the couple were remarkably well insured. Their three separate policies meant that if one of them died, the mortgage would be paid off and the surviving partner would get £70,000 in cash. An additional policy on Julie's life would give Warren another £50,000. Clearly, Warren Green stood to gain financially from his wife's death. But motive is not enough to sustain a charge of murder. Collinson and his colleagues settled down to review the bare facts. Julie had been murdered in a storeroom locked ostensibly from the inside. The murderer must have left by the rear outer door, which could only be closed by locking it. The key, on its ring with a Jaguar fob motive, was missing. Alternatively, Warren himself had murdered his wife and hidden the keys to make it look like an outside job. He wouldn't have risked going out to get rid of them in case someone recognised him on the street, so they must still be in the house. If he were the culprit, he would have left the storeroom by its inner door, locking it from the kitchen side. He would then have pushed the key back under the door to fit his claim that he had knocked it onto the storeroom floor with a screwdriver. At the moment, we don't have a scrap of evidence either way, Collinson concluded. Our only real hope is to find those keys. Detectives scoured Green's house, local gardens, bins, the patrol car that brought him to the station. No keys. Other lines of inquiry also proved unproductive. Forensic examination of Warren's clothing failed to reveal even one speck of Julie's blood. And when police told Julie's mother, Mrs Dilla Silito, that Warren had been held for questioning, she was incredulous. You've got the wrong man. Warren would never do that. But if Warren Green hadn't killed his wife, who had? Booth began questioning Green again. Was there anyone who could conceivably have wished Julie harm, he asked. Green shook his head helplessly. Everyone loved his tender-hearted wife. Suddenly, Green recalled that soon after the discovery of Julie's body, a policeman had told him that there was a pill canister marked temazepam, commonly used as a tranquilizer, near her right hand. At the time, said Green, he had merely assumed that Julie had put an empty container into her pocket at the hospital but now he wondered whether Julie had been selling drugs she brought back from the hospital and had locked the storeroom door to avoid being disturbed. Had some transaction gone horribly wrong? Never forget the dangers of making assumptions too early in a case, Collinson told himself sternly. The murder investigation would now have to become a drugs inquiry. Fresh teams of detectives set to work. After more than ten hours of interviewing, Green remained calm, courteous and precise, Booth could detect no deviation in his story. On Sunday evening he was released, on condition he did not return home. 
Next morning, the police began another search of Green's house, listing the entire contents of every room. They scoured the rafters and chimney, scanned nearby roofs and guttering, searched the sewers and inspected every street drain within a half-mile radius. Still no keys. Meanwhile, examination of the scrap of paper found near Julie's left hand revealed fresh evidence to suggest she might have been killed by an outsider in a drug deal. It was the blood-stained bottom left-hand corner of a ten-pound note. Could Julie have had a row over a drug deal, then been bludgeoned to death? Interviews with Julie's relatives and friends offered another clue. Several people mentioned that she had been troubled by mystery telephone calls. When Julie picked up the phone, no one answered. The caller waited, then hung up. The calls came only when Warren was not at home. It was as if someone were watching the house and knew when Julie was alone. Could some sick person be stalking her? Then Collinson's team received a call from a Mrs Sheila Silito from Wrightington, just outside Wigan. The night before the murder, she told them, a man had rung her, asking, Is Julie there? Told not, he said, I'm trying to get in touch with a Julie Silito, Julie's maiden name. Told that she did not live there, the caller rang off. Could he, Collinson wondered, be the same person who had been ringing Julie at home? Perhaps even the murderer? At a press conference on Wednesday, November 6, Warren Green, blinking into the television lights, appealed for help in his soft Lancashire accent. If anyone, anywhere, can give any information about even the most trivial thing, please contact the police. Please do. Choking back tears, he talked about Julie. She was full of life and extremely lovely. I loved her. I still love her. Then, against the clicking of dozens of press cameras, he held up a duplicate set of keys Collinson had had made, complete with Jaguar emblazoned fob. As the second week after Julie's murder wore on, the trail went cold. All inquiries indicated that she had no involvement in the drug scene. Forensic examination revealed no fingerprints on the hammer and nothing in the Greens' home gave any clue to the killer's identity. The rest of the ten-pound note could not be found. Inevitably, suspicion once more focused on Warren Green. As a CPS solicitor, he routinely sifted through evidence to go before a court, looking for flaws in a police case or in a defendant's story. He was well equipped to lay a false trail. But how could he have killed his wife without getting blood on a single piece of clothing? Collinson mused. Perhaps he took his clothes off after he had stunned her with the first blow, suggested Booth. He delivered another 15 blows, then went upstairs to wash himself thoroughly. Forensic investigators had found small bloodstains on the bathroom basin and on the tiles above, but not enough to pinpoint a particular blood group. Green could simply have cut himself shaving. What about the mystery calls? asked Collinson. Green could have made them all, Smelt suggested. The caller never rang when he was there. And the call to Mrs Sheila Silito? Green could have made that too, said Booth. The next Silito in the directory is Julie's mother. Yet he didn't try her. Why? Because she would certainly have recognised Green's voice. One more cause for suspicion was the triple nine call Green had made from the Maguire's funeral parlour after finding his wife dead. Instead of immediately requesting an ambulance, he had asked for the police, then begun a rambling account of what he had done that morning. And when traffic patrolman Andrew Cunliffe arrived minutes later, Green again went through his lengthy account. Were Green's actions those of a man in shock, wondered Collinson? 
Or was he, with his lawyer's training, carefully recording all the details necessary for a watertight alibi? The second search of Green's house had revealed a pair of shoes with traces of something that might have been blood on the soles. They were sent for analysis, but the keys were still missing. The place has been picked clean, Smout reported. Collinson stared gloomily out of his office window. Every instinct told him Warren Green must be the killer. Yet without the keys, they still had no firm evidence. He turned back to face Smout. We're going to have to search the house again, Frank, he announced. We'll bring in a new search team. Perhaps we need fresh eyes. On Monday, November 11, police began the most thorough search yet. Next morning, they lifted the hall carpet and unscrewed six short floorboards. Torch in hand, PC Ian McCauley began inching along on his stomach in the 18-inch space between the ground and the floor joists. After half an hour peering into the dust-filled gloom, his torch suddenly lit up a pipe recessed almost invisibly under the front door sill and blocked with half-bricks and rubble, which he started to clear. He flashed his torch down the pipe, and something glinted. Booth stopped Collinson on the station stairs. You're not going to believe this, boss, he said, beaming. We've found the keys, and they've got blood on them. Early on Thursday morning, Booth and Collinson began interviewing Green once more. Eventually, Collinson began describing how Macaulay had found the pipe in the wall. Slowly, the colour drained from Green's face. Like a blood bank emptying, Collinson recalls. Guess what we found, Mr Green? From a bag hidden on his lap, Collinson placed the keys on the table. White-faced, Green closed his eyes and rocked back in his chair. Eventually he spoke. It's not me. Collinson bombarded him with more questions. But Green, in contrast to his earlier lengthy replies, just repeated, It's not me. It's not me. Finally, Collinson suggested that Green had either planned the murder or killed his wife in a moment of anger following a dispute. By now, Green had recovered his composure. This is ridiculous, he responded. I'll quite plainly say I've not killed Julie and I couldn't do it. As Green was taken down to the cells, Booth shook his head wearily. A cool customer. On February 23, 1993, Warren Green stood in the dock at Liverpool's Crown Court No. 5. Dapper in a dark suit, he maintained an air of perplexed innocence. His mind easily a match for the other lawyers in court, he dismissed most of the evidence as circumstantial, but he was in difficulty over the keys, and the shoes now shown to carry traces of his wife's blood. Someone must have put them where they were found, but not him. He looked across at the jury as if appealing to them to exercise their imagination. The police, perhaps? It was his last hope. At the end of the 14-day trial, the jury's verdict was unanimous. Guilty. Green slumped in his seat, head in his hands. Sentencing him to life imprisonment, Mr Justice Ognall declared, You killed your wife in a fashion marked by a chilling degree of control and concentration. You then took determined and sophisticated steps in an effort to mislead the police, and these steps included maligning your dead wife as a criminal and a drugs dealer. It should be recorded that whatever her failings, she deserves to be remembered as a vivacious, caring and decent young woman. 
Detective Superintendent Collinson and his colleagues had finally succeeded in bringing to justice one of the most calculated, cold-blooded murderers in British criminal history. Most people plotting murder think it will be the perfect crime, says Collinson. But Warren Green came very close to pulling it off. For more RD Talks, visit readersdigest.com.au. Brought to you by Reader's Digest Australia, a division of Direct Publishing.